Hi, I'm Craig. And I'm Linda. And this is the Indie Travel Podcast at IndieTravelPodcast.com. This is episode 360, and we're talking about hiking the Cotswold Way. That's right. I recently did the Cotswold Way hike in the UK with a friend of mine, Dave Dean, from TooManyAdapters.com. And we'll be talking about what it is, what it's like, some of the unique things that I found along the way. But before that, what have we been up to? Well, we're currently in Bristol, so we've arrived here after Craig did the Cotswold Way. We went to Belfast for a week, and then we came here. So we're now house-sitting in a quite a nice little house in the suburbs of Bristol. We have a very amusing dog. He is so funny. He's like a little soft toy. And the first couple of days, he was really unsure about us, but then he decided he liked us and went a bit manic. So it's been interesting. Yeah, he's displaying about 110% of his personality at the moment. It's good fun. Yeah, we're wondering what he'll be like when he calms down, if he calms down. And Bristol has been really nice, eh? Yeah, it's quite cool because we know people. Dave lives here. He's not here at the moment. And we also know Heather from heatherontertravels.com. So we've got we've got contacts. Also, over the weekend, we met up with um, a couple who I met online while language learning, and they seem really nice. So we're probably going to spend some time with them again. Yeah, it should be quite a social couple of months. Well, let's crack into it, eh? Yeah, so tell me, Greg, what is the Cotswold Way? Well, it's a hiking trail, and it runs from Chipping Camden uh, in the north of the Cotswolds down to Bath or vice versa. You can do it south to north or north to south. And the Cotswold is designated an area of outstanding national beauty. So everywhere I've seen these A-O-N-B signs, <laughs> that's what that stood for. And that's called the Cotswolds. The hike itself, the Cotswold Way, is around 165 k's or 100 miles long. Okay, and why did you decide to do it? Was it, it partly because you were jealous of me walking the Camino earlier this year? Yeah, yeah, I definitely mm. thought that I needed some uh, some hiking time after you got to do a week of the Camino. I thought I could return the favor and leave you behind the computer while I went out hiking. I was so jealous. <laughs> but in fact, the impetus for doing it was a friend of mine, Dave, who was planning to do some hiking in the UK. And I said, yeah, let's let's do it. So I got, I got kind of half an invite and kind of half invited myself along. And it was a really good plan. I think you were kind of talking, we, we were both kind of talking about doing it and we couldn't justify both of us taking all the time off work and then Dave was going to do it. So it was one of those things that just kind of snowballed into happening. Yeah, we were staying in Stroud over the summer, which is one of the larger towns in the Cotswolds. So we were in the area and we knew that it was, you know, a national trail and is one of the highlight walks of the UK. And uh, yeah, it was just kind of in the air. And did it meet your expectations? Yeah, I think so. It was a very British walk. You were walking through quite a few small towns, through farmland, over rights of way and public paths, through sometimes some massive parks with old country houses in them. And yeah, I guess everything was very human influenced. Even the forests and the woodlands, you can tell they'd been, they'd been tended, that they had been, you know, looked after they they weren't wild primeval primordial forests they were very much yeah they've been people here for tens of thousands of years interacting with this environment one of the things that was quite special i guess was the local stone type of sandstone i think and it's this yellowy white color and as you walk through the cotswolds all of the ground is is made out of the stone and as you walk along, the color of it changes 
from a more of a, a white corally kind of color into almost like a honey kind of color as the, the land changes. That's and, interesting. Yeah, yeah. It was quite neat because this is a local stone, so everything's quarried from it and everything from tiny little huts to great big kind of manor houses are all built with this stone. That's really cool. So I think that's one thing that's that's very different from our previous walks. But most of our walks that we've done in the past have been in New Zealand and in Spain. So you mentioned that it seemed very tended. So that's a big difference from walking in New Zealand, right? Yeah, we're yeah. in just the forest. How do you think it differs from walking the Camino, which is another one of the longer hikes that we've done? Well, I guess the big thing is the amount of pre-planning that I had to do or Dave and I had to do to make this walk work. Uh, with the Camino, there are places to stay, kind of feels like every 5Ks, maybe more realistically every 10Ks. There's this huge industry devoted to people walking on the Camino. In the Cotswolds, there is sufficient infrastructure, but you're often staying in little B&Bs that might just have, you know, one to three rooms or staying in small pubs where they might have half a dozen rooms available for rent. So we actually needed to book things out in advance, maybe about six weeks in advance, actually. And we had to change our original start dates because we couldn't get accommodation in the places that we wanted to stay, like in the towns that we planned out our route. And yeah, we had to like plan where we would start and where we, we would stop every day well in advance. And I feel like with the Camino, you can just wake up in the morning and decide if you want to do 15Ks or 45Ks and just, you know, walk to that town and there's a really high chance you'll be able to find somewhere to sleep. I didn't feel like that at all with this walk. And there were days when we felt like we could have gone further and days, especially with my feet that got a bit blistered by the end of it, there were days when I could have taken a day off or walked a shorter day and it would have been better. But we didn't have those options because we had to kind of pre-book all the accommodation. That's really interesting. Were there any standout experiences along the way? Yeah, I think there's quite a few. And they're those small moments of joy that you get from hiking that maybe not translate so well into a, you know, into a story. I remember like meeting a dog walker at the top of Cleve Hill. And we were standing looking out with this 360 degree view of the, the farmland and the towns all around and just having a chat about all sorts of stuff while kicking the ball and throwing the balls for the dogs. And that was just a real human standout moment. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about that. On our last day, we were we had just finished a pub lunch and we were walking out of town on the trail to, to get to the finish point. We're just in the last couple of hours of the walk. So by this point, we, we were on day eight. We were foot sore, everything, you know, just felt a bit tough, but we're excited as well about coming to the end and a little bit sad about coming to the end as well. And coming down the path towards us were two super extroverts from Portland. One of them literally had a feather in her cap, had like <laughs> a, an old school uh, hunting cap. And yeah, and they just had so much energy and and kind of bouncy first day just getting started want to talk about everything want to you know super excited and we spoke with them for about 15 20 minutes and yeah just that difference in energy right <laughs> from day one to day eight I was yeah. like wow yep that was quite different. That reminds me of the time when we were on the Camino exhausted in an albergue and this whole group of 
uh, late teenagers came in. They were on a school trip and they hadn't started. They were starting the next day and they had so much energy and we were exhausted and we're kind of muttering under our breath, this stupid kids. And, uh, get off my lawn. Yeah. <laughs> and then, uh, as the days went on and we saw them get more and more exhausted, it was quite satisfying. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, it's nice to see people starting out when you're at the end of a walk because you can think, ah, oh, yeah, they've got a good time ahead of them. <laughs> I guess something else that was really cool was coming into Stroud, not only because that's where you were, I got Aww. to see you that day, but uh, we had been living for the previous couple of months basically at the bottom of Selsley Common. And the way took us over Selsley Common. So we got to like walk over that and meet you at a pub that we had been to several times, have a drink there, and then walk up into Stroud. And, and yeah, because of that connection, because we had been there, that felt really cool. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was nice to see you, obviously. I think it's worth saying that the Cotswold Way can also be divided up into sections, and you can do it in bits, if you like. So in this case, Craig and Dave came into Stroud, and I walked for the weekend with them. So I did Saturday and Sunday, which was really good. I met them on Friday, did what we did about half an hour to get into town. And then they stayed the night at the accommodation where I was staying. Um, and I joined them for the next two days. And then I kind of veered off as we were coming into Cheltenham Spa. They continued straighty, righty, and I went left into Cheltenham and uh, caught the train back. Actually, it was the bus in the end because it was difficult. Transport can be a bit of a challenge if you're wanting to do little segments. But yeah, it was really cool. And I think one of my highlights was also people Remember when we came to the top of one of these lookouts and we saw some people napping. They were just having a rest and they stopped us because they recognized our accents and they wanted to talk about being New Zealanders. They weren't New Zealanders, but they quite liked New Zealand. And then uh, we saw them again later on because we stopped for lunch and they obviously stopped napping and continued on and uh, stopped somewhere else for lunch. And we came across them again, napping somewhere else. <laughs> and we were making jokes about napping the Cotswold Way, which, yeah, I think it's a quite a good idea. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So let's talk about practicalities. How far were you walking each day? Oh, it was around 25 k's a day. Uh, the shortest day, according to my phone's GPS, was around 18 k's, and the longest day was about 30 k's. And which day was that, Craig? Uh, that was the day that you joined us mm, for, Linda. Mm. I, I thought you'd enjoy that. Yeah, yeah. thanks so much. <laughs> <laughs> the whole way was pretty much rolling hills, pretty gentle slopes. There was definitely no technical walking involved. From looking at some of the guidebooks that had like elevation charts, we were worried that some of these slopes were going to be really quite steep. But in fact, only a couple of them were, and everything was much easier than we expected, even though we were both stuck behind our desks for the preceding couple of months and were quite unfit. So what about hiking poles? Do you think they're necessary? Uh, not necessary for a lot of people, but I'm certainly a convert, like, I, I want my hiking poles all the time now. It just takes so much pressure off of my knees. And uh, yeah, we didn't need to pack a lot, just basically a change of clothes and toiletries. And I think mo about half of my bag was probably actually having my tablet, phone, guidebook, a novel, and charging cables. That was like half of the weight. It was way too much entertainment stuff that I brought along. I also think that you took too much wet weather gear. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's Britain. I don't think you can take too much wet weather gear. So I had uh, yeah, a jacket and a poncho to cover the bag in case it got really, really wet. 
yeah so there was there was a lot of weight there and we were super lucky we had fantastic weather coming off the end of this you know really hot british summer that we've just had but you know it's britain expect rain did it rain on you at all or did you not have any rain yeah, we had one morning where we were up in the, you know, a bit higher up where it was uh, kind of a scotch mist. It was somewhere between cloud and fog and rain. So that was a pretty wet morning. Uh, and apart from that, I think we got caught in one heavy shower at another time as well. And would you recommend that you go north to south or south to north? I know that you started from the south and headed north. Yeah, so this is really interesting. You can either walk from Bath up to Chipping Camden or in reverse. And there's a couple of practical reasons we chose Bath. Uh, it was easier for us to get to. We could stay in Bristol the night before and then catch the train out less than an hour and then just start straight away. Uh, whereas Chipping Camden doesn't have as much public transport. I think there's two to three buses in there per day. So if we started from Chipping Camden, from where we were, we'd have to arrive in Chipping Camden, spend the afternoon and the evening there, and then start the next day. Uh, we couldn't make it work to kind of arrive and start walking. Mm -hmm. So that was a, a bit of a, a practical issue. In terms of the walk itself, that first day leaving Bath was the most boring day. And I think having your most boring day as the first day is completely acceptable because it's day one. You're you're excited, you're high energy, and then everything just gets better from there on out. I think that the last couple of days were some of the, the most beautiful in terms of how they look. So if you started with that, then things would slowly deteriorate as you got closer to Bath. So I really like doing the south to north route, even though that's less popular. Mm -hmm. Most people do start in Chipping Camden and walk south. And I'm not really sure why. I was reading a couple of the books about this. And one of the reasons the guidebooks gave, because the guidebooks actually mostly give instruction from north to south. So they, they assume you're going to be starting in Chipping Camden. And one of the reasons was that public transport thing, that it's easier to get there. So you, you get to Chipping Camden, it's a bit of a challenge, but you can get there and stay the night perhaps and then start. Whereas if you get to Bath, it's easier just to get away once you arrive. Mm. And also they were saying you get the, the reward of walking into Bath, which is a pretty awesome city anyway, and worth seeing in its own right. But then from what you're saying about Chipping Camden, that's pretty cool too. Yeah, I mean, it's significantly smaller than Bath and doesn't have all the storied history. But it was a neat town. It'll be really easy to spend half a day there. Uh, we got in... I think around two o'clock and we had some time to kill before the train at four would take us out to, uh, sorry, the bus at four take us to Cheltenham Spa where we transferred onto trains to go home. And uh, yeah, we spent that looking around at the old market town and some of the architecture and a lot of time looking at the architecture of a pub courtyard. Ah, so, interesting. Yeah, that was good. Got to have a couple of pints to, to wrap things up. So practically speaking, it's important to look at transport away from Chipping Camden if you're if you're going from south to north. And if you're going the other way, look at how you're going to get to Chipping Camden. If you can get there early enough in the morning to start your walk, or if you need to get there the night before and organize accommodation. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Speaking of accommodation, where did you stay along the way? Mainly in B&Bs and pubs. It was pretty hard to find the information in the guidebook that I had. 
Luckily, Dave's guidebook had a lot more detailed information, so we, we leant heavily on that. And there's a National Trails website that had like an interactive planner. It was a bit clunky, but we managed to get some phone numbers and call up places. So that was one of the hardest bits, as I said before, was trying to plan how far we wanted to walk, try and find some accommodation on the trail or within a kilometer of the trail around that, and then try and get that booked. It wasn't as as simple as I would have liked and took quite a few phone calls rather than being able to use online booking systems and things to get confirmation. And have you written up your itinerary so we can publish it on the show notes? Yeah, I'll put an itinerary and a packing list as well up on Indie Travel Podcast and we'll make sure that's all interlinked with the show notes here. Yeah, I think we won't go through the itinerary now on the on the show. Uh, yeah, you know, it's a lot of small places that no one will have ever heard of. I think it's more practical if you are planning to, you know, to do it, to grab a guidebook and, and grab an itinerary like the one we'll publish and uh, plan your own trip out. So you're saying that quite a lot of these uh, B&Bs and pubs were quite small. Were they located near food? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Uh, for when we stayed in the pubs, we would eat in the pub. And uh, a couple of times the B&Bs were in villages or in farms just outside of villages. So we could walk into the village and there'd be a village pub there that we could then eat at. But some of them were really remote. Quite often, uh, I think two times, the owner of the B&B would arrange to drop us in at a pub and then come and pick us up a couple of hours later. And quite often, those those car rides were kind of 10-minute car rides each way, so it would have been a, a significant walk. There was one place we stayed where the woman didn't have a car and the nearest pub was about a 30, 35-minute walk away. So that was a, a long evening after getting in and, and feeling a bit sore, taking a couple of hours to take a break, and then having to go for another walk along a really busy road to get to dinner. And what about lunches? What did you do for lunch and snacks along the way? Yeah, it was a bit of a combination, and we did have to look in the guidebook every day to figure out what was happening. So sometimes we'd stop in at a supermarket or a, a small store, and we'd buy some salads and sandwiches and things like that and carry those with us for lunch. Uh, other times, there'd be villages around the kind of 15K mark, 12 to 15K mark, that made for great lunch spots. So we could stop around 12 to 1 o'clock, have a long, lazy lunch, recuperate a little bit, and then jump up and do the last couple of hours of walking. So what did you find worked really well on the walk? What did you do to prepare that was really worthwhile? And what did you find didn't really work very well? Oh, that's a big question. I think that the things that didn't work were mainly around equipment failure. Like I borrowed your backpack to do the walk and that didn't really sit that well on my back. And uh, I got some new shoes about a month before and even though I had broken them in, they weren't the best. So that created, you know, back problems and feet problems. And those are the two things that you really don't want when you have to get up every morning and, and keep on hiking. It was pretty neat coming into Stroud about halfway because it's quite a big town and there are a couple of outdoor stores there. So I was able to change out some gear on the fly. But also in Stroud, we did some laundry and I put all of my socks in the laundry. I don't know what you were thinking. And they didn't all get dried. In fact, everything stayed damp. Nothing dried properly. It was quite a wet area. 
So it meant I had to hike that day, which was our longest day in wet socks. I really should have taken your advice and spent another 10 or 20 quid and gone and bought some new socks before leaving town that morning. Yep. Yeah. Uh, As for things that went well, I think that it was good and lucky that Dave and I had a pretty similar approach and pretty similar pace when it came to walking. We'd never done anything like this before, and it was good that, you know, he... I'm not a morning person at all, and he would be up first and, you know, ready to go. And that was that was fine, but I could also get up within a reasonable period of, of when he wanted to be going. So that was good that we were kind of in sync there. It wasn't like one of us wanted to be leaving at six and the other one wanted to be leaving at nine. And in fact, what we did was timed everything around breakfast. So we had organized with the, the B&B or with the pub to have breakfast at about eight. And breakfast was always huge. If you've never had a British uh, B&B breakfast, they are something quite spectacular. It's an entire plate full of fried food with some uh, baked beans alongside it. You normally have sausages, bacon, black pudding, mushrooms, and baked beans Eggs, along with tomatoes. toast. Yeah, and then fried eggs and tomatoes as well. So it for someone that normally just has an espresso for breakfast and then starts eating it around lunchtime, this was a huge amount of food, and it really uh, kept me fueled up right through the day. Cool. So do you think it was good to switch to having these large breakfasts for the walk? Do you think that helped, or do you think it disrupted your patterns? I don't know. Because I was doing so much, I was burning a lot more calories and using a lot more energy and muscle than I normally do sitting, you know, sitting behind the desk and wandering around some tourist attractions. I I really used it all. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was good, but it normally takes my, my body quite a while to wake up and eating in the morning tends to make me nauseous. And so I was fighting between those two different things of having this delicious food that my body was craving and at the same time not feeling great having eaten it. Mm, That's unfortunate. Cool. So what do you think you could have done better to prepare for this walk? In a perfect world, I would have had perfect shoes. I think if I could have changed my shoes out for something magical and mystical, some unknown hiking boot that I've never found in uh, my 15-year history of going hiking so I could have blister-free feet, that would have been the, the big thing. I think I was really happy with the decision to walk from the south to the north. And yeah, even though I had gear that I didn't use so much, like the wet weather gear, I wouldn't have wanted to walk without it. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think it was the right amount of of preparation, the right amount of stuff and equipment to keep the bag nice and light. And yeah, it was just the the equipment failure of of those shoes and, and my feet. Cool. So takeaways for people who are thinking of walking the Cotswold Way. It sounds like prepare well in advance, uh, book your accommodation as soon as you can. So choose your dates, book your accommodation, make sure to choose the right person to walk with because you'll be spending quite a lot of time with them. Pack carefully, especially shoes and backpack and socks and take wet weather gear. Anything I've missed? Oh, that's pretty much it. Some of the guidebooks are significantly better than others, and uh, I'll put that in the packing list that we'll publish on the uh, the website as well if anyone's interested in that. 
And I'd say that getting the right guidebook is going to make a massive difference. Mm -hmm. The guidebook that I had, in fact, was mainly used for comedic purposes. <laughs> We'd pull it out at lunchtime and read over the description of the places we had just been and be overwhelmed by the, the dramatic use of adjectives and adverbs and the description of the family of some French cows that we had passed on the way and... Yeah, there was a lot of useless information and very little about where we were actually going. And yeah, if we didn't have Dave's book, we would have been severely lost. So <laughs> so did you use the book quite a lot for wayfinding or was the waymarking along the way quite good? Oh, the waymarking was amazing. Once we got out of Bath, I think like most walks that go through big cities, it's really hard to find your way through. But as soon as we left Bath, uh, or even got to the outskirts of Bath, we started seeing the little acorn markers of the National Trail pretty much everywhere. And there, I don't remember a time that we came to an intersection that we didn't have a an acorn. If not directly at the intersection, then very, very soon after it. In fact, we only got off the way, I think, three times in eight days. And one time was because we decided that one path looked better than another, and then we had to find our way back to the <laughs> uh, the original trail. The other two times, we just went maybe three to five minutes along and went, you know, this doesn't look right, and we haven't seen any way markers. And we'd pull out the, the guidebook or pull out the GPS and, you know, just confirm where we were meant to be. And one of those times we were just kind of dozing along and we were following someone else, but they weren't on the same hike that we were on. Oh. So, you know, but we always figured it out really quickly. And I think that goes to show how well waymarked everything was. Mm -hmm. And that's something else you did. You kind of marked everything on your GPS, didn't you? Yeah, I used a new app that I haven't used before, and I was actually able to download the official trail as it's gazetted onto the GPS, so I could see where we were walking and where the official gazetted trail was. Uh, sometimes that diverged a little bit because of, you know, seasonal changes. So we could always see, are we walking along the trail or parallel with the trail, or are we way off and going in the wrong direction? Mm -hmm. But it sounds like you didn't have to use that all that often. No, I think I we mainly relied on the waymarkers and Dave's guidebook to to pick our path, and then maybe once a day we might pull out the GPS just to make sure we were on the the most efficient route. Awesome. So, is there anything you'd like to add about the Cotswold Way before we finish up? Oh, it was a lot of fun, and if you have the opportunity to do it, then go ahead and do it. Uh, we took eight days to do the walk. You can do it in a longer period of time. You can push on and get it done in about five to six days without things being too uncomfortable. I mean, we were doing 25Ks a day, more or less. Mm -hmm. And that was, you know, that's really comfortable in terms of distance with that kind of terrain. Yeah, so if you wanted to do it faster, you could probably get the whole thing done, including your transport in and out in a in a calendar week. And yeah, so very rewarding for the amount of time that you put into it. What about money? How much did you spend? Oh, way too much. Um, the average cost of accommodation was about £40 a night. Per person. Per person. Yeah, and that was for uh, twin rooms. And then we'd basically double that for, for food. Pub lunch, pub dinner would be around £20 each. And so... 
Uh, yeah, you'd go 40 for your accommodation and breakfast, and then about 20 for lunch and about 20 for dinner. You can shave a little bit off of that some days, but because of the remoteness of the track, you know, you can't always just go into a supermarket or something and, and buy five bucks worth of groceries to get you through lunch. And what about camping? Camping is difficult. I talked to some people who have done it in the past and they wild camped along the way. From my understanding, that's really strongly advised against and disincentivized. I don't know exactly where it stands in the legal framework. There was one campsite and only one campsite that was on the trail itself. There were a couple of others, but there were sometimes a couple of k's away off the track. And that's a lot of extra walking to fit in. So we decided it was better off rather than buying some extra gear to go camping and then to only be able to use it on one or two nights and have to do a whole lot of extra k's. Uh, instead to forget about that and just go with the B&Bs and pubs. Cool, so I think that's about it. If you do have any questions, you can email us, mail at IndieTravelPodcast.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter at IndieTravel. So what's next for us? Well, as you know, we're here in Bristol for a few more weeks, probably about six more weeks with our crazy dog. And then after that, we'll be heading to London. We're going to World Travel Market, which is a big travel conference. And then we're not entirely sure. In fact, we should get onto that today. <laughs> I guess so. We are thinking about going to Cyprus for a week or so. Then we're flying to Greece. We've got flights from Greece to Melbourne. And then we're heading back to New Zealand. Yeah, so we should be back in New Zealand for Christmas, which will be exciting. But there's a lot more adventures to be had on the way. Well, that's us for this week. Until next time, travel well.